0: Part two, chapter twenty five of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London, or Wild England, by Richard Jeffreys. Part two, Wild England. Chapter twenty five, The Shepherds. For four days Felix remained on the island, recovering his strength. By degrees, The memory of the scenes he had witnessed grew less vivid, and his nerves regained their tone. The fifth morning he sailed again, making due south with a gentle breeze from the west, which suited the canoe very well. He considered that he was now at the eastern extremity of the lake, and that by sailing south he should presently reach the place where the shore turned to the east again. The sharp prow of the canoe cut swiftly through the waves, a light spray flew occasionally in his face, and the wind blew pleasantly. In the cloudless sky swallows and swifts were wheeling, and on the water half a dozen mallards moved aside to let him pass. About two hours after he started he encountered a mist which came softly over the surface of the water with the wind, and in an instant shut out all view. Even the sun was scarcely visible it was very warm and left no moisture. In five minutes he passed through and emerged again in the bright sunlight. These dry, warm mists are frequently seen on the lake in summer, and are believed to portend a continuance of fine weather. Felix kept a good distance from the mainland, which was hilly and wooded, and with few islands. Presently he observed in the extreme distance on his right hand, a line of mountainous hills, which he supposed to be the southern shore of the lake, and that he was sailing into a gulf or bay. He debated with himself whether he should alter his course and work across to the mountains, or to continue to trace the shore. Unless he did trace the shore, he could scarcely say that he had circumnavigated the lake, as he would leave this great bay unexplored. He continued, therefore, to sail directly south. The wind freshened towards noon, and the canoe flew at a great pace. Twice he passed through similar mists. There were now no islands at all, but a line of low chalk cliffs marked the shore. Considering that it must be deep and safe to do so, Felix bore in closer to look at the land. Woods ran along the hills right to the verge of the cliff, but he saw no signs of inhabitants no smoke, boat, or house. The sound of the surf beating on the beach was audible, though the waves were not large. High over the cliff he noted a kite soaring with forked tail at a great height. Immediately afterwards he ran into another mist or vapour, thicker, if anything, and which quite obscured his view. It seemed like a great cloud on the surface of the water and broader than those he had previously entered suddenly the canoe stopped with a tremendous jerk which pitched him forward on his knees the mast cracked and there was a noise of splitting wood as soon as he could get up felix saw to his bitter sorrow that the canoe had split longitudinally the water came up through the split and the boat was held together only by the beams of the outrigger He had run aground on a large, sharp flint embedded in a chalk floor, which had split the poplar wood of the canoe like an axe. The voyage was over, for the least strain would cause the canoe to part in two, and if she were washed off the ground she would be waterlogged. In half a minute the mist passed, leaving him in the bright day, shipwrecked. Felix now saw that the waters were white with suspended chalk, and sounding with the paddle, found that the depth was but a few inches. He had driven at full speed on a reef. There was no danger, for the distance to the shore was hardly two hundred yards, and judging by the appearance of the water, it was shallow all the way. But his canoe, the product of so much labour, and in which he had voyaged so far, his canoe was destroyed. He could not repair her. He doubted whether it could have been done successfully, even at home with Oliver to help him. He could sail no farther. There was nothing for it but to get ashore and travel on foot. If the wind rose higher, the waves would soon break clean over her, and she would go to pieces. With a heavy heart Felix took his paddle and stepped overboard. Feeling with the paddle, he plumbed the depth in front of him, and, as he expected, walked all the way to the shore, no deeper than his knees. This was fortunate, as it enabled him to convey his things to land without loss. He wrapped up the tools and manuscripts in one of his hunter's hides. When the whole cargo was landed, he sat down sorrowfully at the foot of the cliff, and looked out at the broken mast and sail still flapping uselessly in the breeze it was a long time before he recovered himself and set to work mechanically to bury the crossbow hunter's hides tools and manuscripts under a heap of pebbles as the cliff though low was perpendicular he could not scale it else he would have preferred to conceal them in the woods above to pile pebbles over them was the best he could do for the present he intended to return for them when he discovered a path up the cliff. He then started, taking only his bow and arrows. But no such path was to be found. He walked on and on till weary, and still the cliff ran like a wall on his left hand. After an hour's rest he started again, and as the sun was declining, came suddenly to a gap in the cliff, where a grassy sward came down to the shore. It was now too late, and he was too weary, to think of returning for his things that evening. He made a scanty meal, and endeavoured to rest. But the excitement of losing the canoe, the long march since, the lack of good food, all tended to render him restless. Weary, he could not rest, nor move farther the time passed slowly, the sun sank, the wind ceased. After an interminable time the stars appeared, and still he could not sleep. He had chosen a spot under an oak on the green slope. The night was warm and even sultry, so that he did not miss his covering, but there was no rest in him. Towards the dawn, which comes very early at that season, He at last slept, with his back to the tree. He awoke with a start in broad daylight, to see a man standing in front of him, armed with a long spear. Felix sprang to his feet, instinctively feeling for his hunting-knife, but he saw in an instant that no injury was meant, for the man was leaning on the shaft of his weapon, and of course could, if so he had wished, have run him through while sleeping they looked at each other for a moment. The stranger was clad in a tunic, and wore a hat of plaited straw. He was very tall and strongly built, his single weapon a spear of twice his own length. His beard came down on his chest. He spoke to Felix in a dialect the latter did not understand. Felix held out his hand as a token of amity, which the other took he spoke again. Felix, on his part, tried to explain his shipwreck, when a word the stranger uttered recalled to Felix's memory the peculiar dialect used by the shepherd-race on the hills in the neighbourhood of his home. He spoke in this dialect, which the stranger in part at least understood, and the sound of which at once rendered him more friendly. By degrees, they comprehended each other's meaning the easier, as the shepherd had come the same way, and had seen the wreck of the canoe. Felix learned that the shepherd was a scout, sent on ahead, to see that the road was clear of enemies. His tribe were on the march with their flocks, and to avoid the steep woods and hills which there blocked their course, they had followed the level and open beach at the foot of the cliff, aware of course of the gap which felix had found while they were talking felix saw the cloud of dust raised by the sheep as the flocks wound round a jutting buttress of cliff his friend explained that they marched in the night and early morning to avoid the heat of the day their proposed halting-place was close at hand he must go on and see that all was clear felix accompanied him and found within the wood at the summit a grassy combe where a spring rose. The shepherd threw down his spear, and began to dam up the channel of the spring with stones, flints, and sods of earth, in order to form a pool at which the sheep might drink. Felix assisted him, and the water speedily began to rise. The flocks were not allowed to rush tumultuously to the water. They came in about fifty at a time, each division with its shepherds and their dogs, so that confusion was avoided, and all had their share. There were about twenty of these divisions, besides eighty cows and a few goats. They had no horses, their baggage came on the backs of asses. After the whole of the flocks and herds had been watered, several fires were lit by the women, who in stature and hardihood scarcely differed from the men. Not till this work was over did the others gather about Felix to hear his story. Finding that he was hungry, they ran to the baggage for food, and pressed on him a little dark bread, plentiful cheese and butter, dried tongue, and horns of mead. He could not devour a fiftieth part of what these hospitable people brought him. Having nothing else to give them, He took from his pocket one of the gold coins he had brought from the site of the ancient city and offered it. They laughed and made him understand that it was of no value to them, but they passed it from hand to hand, and he noticed that they began to look at him curiously. From its blackened appearance, they conjectured whence he had obtained it. One, too, pointed to his shoes, which were still blackened and appeared to have been scorched. The whole camp now pressed on him, their wonder and interest rising to a great height. With some trouble, Felix described his journey over the site of the ancient city, interrupted with constant exclamations, questions, and excited conversation. He told them everything, except about the diamond. Their manner towards him perceptibly altered. From the first they had been hospitable they now became respectful and even reverent. The elders and their chief, not to be distinguished by dress or ornament from the rest, treated him with ceremony and marked deference. The children were brought to see and even to touch him. So great was their amazement that anyone should have escaped from these pestilential vapours that they attributed it to divine interposition and looked upon him with some of the awe of superstition. He was asked to stay with them altogether and to take command of the tribe. The latter Felix declined. To stay with them for a while at least he was of course willing enough. He mentioned his hidden possessions and got up to return for them, but they would not permit him. Two men started at once. He gave them the bearings of the spot, and they had not the least doubt but that they should find it, especially as, the wind being still, the canoe would not yet have broken up, and would guide them. The tribe remained in the Green Coombe the whole day, resting from their long journey. They wearied Felix with questions, still he answered them as copiously as he could. He felt too grateful for their kindness not to satisfy them. His bow was handled. His arrows carried about, so that the quiver for the time was empty, and the arrows scattered in twenty hands. He astonished them by exhibiting his skill with the weapon, striking a tree with an arrow at nearly three hundred yards. Though familiar, of course, with the bow, they had never seen shooting like that, nor indeed any archery except at short quarters. They had no other arms themselves but spears and knives. Seeing one of the women cutting the boughs from a fallen tree, dead and dry, and therefore preferable for fuel, Felix naturally went to help her, and taking the axe soon made a bundle, which he carried for her. It was his duty as a noble to see that no woman, not a slave, laboured. He had been bred in that idea, and would have felt disgraced had he permitted it. The women looked on with astonishment, for in these rude tribes, the labour of the women was considered valuable, and appraised like that of a horse. Without any conscious design, Felix thus in one day conciliated and won the regard of the two most powerful parties in the camp, the chief and the women. By his refusing the command, the chief was flattered, and his possible hostility prevented. The act of cutting the wood and carrying the bundle gave him the hearts of the women. They did not, indeed, think their labour in any degree oppressive, still to be relieved of it was pleasing. The two men who had gone for Felix's buried treasure did not return till breakfast next morning. They stepped into the camp, each with his spear reddened and dripping with fresh blood. Felix no sooner saw the blood than he fainted, he quickly recovered, but he could not endure the sight of the spears, which were removed and hidden from his view. He had seen blood enough spilt at the siege of Iwis, but this came upon him in all its horror, unrelieved by the excitement of war. The two shepherds had been dogged by gypsies, and had been obliged to make a round to escape. They took their revenge by climbing into trees, and as their pursuers passed under, thrust them through with their long spears the shepherds like all their related tribes had been at feud with the gipsies for many generations the gipsies followed them to and from their pastures cut off stragglers destroyed or stole their sheep and cattle and now and then overwhelmed a whole tribe of late the contest had become more sanguinary and almost ceaseless Mounted on swift, though small, horses, the gypsies had the advantage of the shepherds. On the other hand, the shepherds, being men of great stature and strength, could not be carried away by a rush if they had time to form a circle, as was their custom of battle. They lost many men by the javelins thrown by the gypsies, who rode up to the edge of the circle, cast their darts, and retreated. If the shepherds left their circle, they were easily ridden over. While they maintained formation, they lost individuals but saved the mass. Battles were of rare occurrence. The gypsies watched for opportunities and executed raids. The shepherds retaliated, and thus the endless war continued. The shepherds invariably posted sentinels, and sent forward scouts to ascertain if the way were clear. ACCUSTOMED TO THE HORRID SCENES OF WAR FROM CHILDHOOD, THEY COULD NOT UNDERSTAND FELIX'S SENSITIVENESS. THEY LAUGHED, AND THEN PETTED HIM LIKE A SPOILT CHILD. THIS galled HIM EXCEEDINGLY. HE FELT HUMILIATED AND EAGER TO REASSERT HIS MANHOOD. HE WAS WILLING TO STAY WITH THEM THERE FOR A WHILE. NOTHING WOULD HAVE INDUCED HIM TO LEAVE THEM NOW, TILL HE HAD VINDICATED HIMSELF IN THEIR SIGHT. The incident happened soon after sunrise, which is very early at the end of June. The camp had only waited for the return of these men, and on their appearance began to move. The march that morning was not a long one, as the sky was clear and the heat soon wearied the flocks. Felix accompanied the scout in advance, armed with his bow, eager to encounter the gypsies. End of part two, chapter twenty-five.